Welcome to The Path to Exit, a podcast to help software and internet founders understand the process to raise capital or sell their business. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Mike Lyon, Founder and Managing Director at VistaPoint Advisors, and this is The Path to Exit. This podcast is dedicated to helping founders of software and internet businesses understand what it takes to raise capital or sell their business and how to do it well. My guest today is Mike Greco, Managing Director at VistaPoint Advisors. Mike has worked in technology M&A for over 10 years and advised countless founders on M&A and capital raising events. You'll recognize him from the episode we did on the importance of a competitive process. In this episode, we discuss the current state of the SaaS M&A markets, who is winning and who is losing, and our short to midterm outlook for the market. I also asked Mike to discuss the topic because he's been on M&A Heater, closing high-quality transactions left and right this year. Please enjoy my discussion with Mike. We wanted to start off just by talking about the dramatic drop-off of SaaS M&A volume pretty much since the first and second quarter of last year and how bootstrap companies have really fared relative to pre-IPO companies and heavily VC-backed companies. So one of the questions we get a lot is, seems like valuations are down. Is that across the board? And the truth is there's kind of three types of companies, and they've all been impacted differently. The pre-IPO companies, their valuations are directly tied to the public markets. And obviously, the public markets traded down pretty dramatically last February or March in the SaaS landscape. And that has flown through directly to them. One of the examples I use is Instacart. They took their valuation down multiple times, mainly because they were trying to keep their employees to get ready for this IPO but they kind of proactively lowered their valuation because it was tied directly to public companies. And those valuations were down anywhere between 40 to 50%. The second part of the market that's been hurt the most has been the heavily VC-backed companies that were losing a lot of money. So basically last year in the downturn, which is pretty common, VCs come back to companies and say, hey, we know we told you to grow at all costs, but now we want you to tack towards profitability. And so companies who needed to raise another round to get to that profitability mark have just really been struggling. And we've seen valuations down 40 to 50%. And for the ones that didn't need to raise capital, those growth rates have come down as they've let go of a lot of employees and just tacking towards profitability. The other segment, this is where we really operate, are the founder-led bootstrap businesses. And things haven't changed as much there. Those businesses, by definition, run break-even to profitable, so they don't have the same concerns about runway. And they've been a a net winner from some of the VC-backed companies being less aggressive. So in general, we've seen the filter tighten for those types of companies, but high-performing businesses are still really getting high multiples, and investors all like the same profile of business. Mike, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is just how the landscape has changed for these founder-backed businesses between PE-backed strategics, PE firms, and public company buyers. Who's more aggressive and who's winning in today's market? Yeah, that's a great question. And candidly, it's been probably the biggest change in who is buying in the last 12, 24 months. There's this time old adage that public company strategics can pay anything, right? Google can pay anything because it's a drop in the bucket. We hear that all the time. The fact of the matter is, though, their cost of capital, you said this quite eloquently in the onset, is their business model and how they're valued has changed the most dramatic. Their cost of capital has gone way down, meaning their equity that they could provide in a transaction as opposed to cash has gone way, way down. What is an accretive transaction from a multiple perspective? Not so 
so much for SaaS on the cost side, but more on the ARR side. So if they're trading at, let's call it 10 times ARR, previously they were trading at 15. So a 10 times ARR multiple for an acquisition for them was accretive. They would get the leverage on that. Whereas today at 10, to get to that same accretive type of math, it's a much lower valuation. So that's part of it. The other part is a lot of the public companies that are in market right now are a little long in the legacy tooth. So what was formerly darlings of the tech market, they've done tremendously well. They've all shifted more as they go public to sales and marketing organizations and a little bit away from innovation on the technology front. So what you see is in these kind of newer markets, burgeoning technologies really just take over. And so what investors historically think as, oh, well, we can't displace X public company strategic now becomes, well, gosh, we can take a lot of their business almost overnight by putting a little bit more effort on the sales and marketing side because we have the technology to beat them on the 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, whatever it is. And so what we're finding is a lot of these private equity groups, instead of searching for the IPO exit, are actually taking these companies further, maybe even doing another recap to help subside the long term of hold periods. But more importantly, holding on to them and not going public longer. As a result, they become better buyers. They're bigger, they're growing faster. And so they become a lot more important to the end market. So if you were to ask me who is the highest likelihood of buying group, if you took strategic private equity backed strategic and PE platform, it would be that middle group, mostly because it's like the Goldilocks. You have the benefit of the synergistic value of having a strategic, the one plus one equals 10, as well as the speed and resources as a private equity group. That being said, there's also a lot of aggressiveness. And to my earlier point from the PE platform folks, because they see these massive markets, some have not been displaced at all. Uh, Short-term rental is a great example of that. Field service is another great example where technology has not really entered in a meaningful fashion. Greenfield opportunities are at the plentiful. And so they can just build really big businesses. But also in some of these legacy industries, they're just able to eat a lot of their lunch because of the innovation that has been had. And so a lot of investors have good experience in certain verticals. Good experience tends to lead to more confidence in their ability to grow those businesses. And as a result, having them be a lot more aggressive and even platform. So I I know that was a long-winded answer, but the simple fact is public companies are getting beat up by the macro markets quite a bit. Their cost of capital has gone way, way up. And as a result, these other two more private-oriented outcomes just tend to be the better ones. Great point and a lot of good detail in there. But I think in summary, three years ago, you know, maybe it was equal probability if you're a founder trying to sell your business, it would be a public company strategic, a private company strategic, or a PE platform. That's changed a little bit the last year or two with the public company strategics falling off. As the valuations tend to improve for them, hopefully going forward, I would expect to see them bounce back. Also, a little bit of what you have going on is the private companies, they mark their company's valuation. They mark it to market probably once a year, but that's not as robust of a process as the public companies who are obviously marked every day. And so that's certainly impacting what they can pay and how aggressive will be. Another trend we've seen this year is really a change in how everyone thinks about the rule of 40. So for those of you who follow SaaS metrics, you'll commonly hear the rule of 40 talked about. And it's basically where you take your revenue growth rate and add your EBITDA margin or your cash flow margin, however you want to think about it. And it's meant to basically compare for businesses that are growing really quickly, but maybe not that profitable or losing money versus businesses that are very profitable. 
by definition, that metric thinks about those two numbers as kind of fungible, right? You can spend more money and grow faster, or you can be more profitable. This year, I think we've detected the biggest change in that metric, meaning investors and buyers would like to see some profitability as part of the equation. So if you're a rule of 40 company, it's probably a little bit better to be 30% on the growth rate and 10% EBITDA margin than 60% on the growth rate and negative 20% EBITDA margin. I suspect that will change as we get back to growth and people are more focused on growth, but it is something worth pointing out that there's been a pretty big change in that over the past 12 months, and you should be aware of it as you're thinking about projecting your business and how you want to grow it. Mike, maybe talk a little bit about some of the PE fund sizes coming down. Obviously, there's been some headlines around PE firms trying to continue to raise these mega funds and having to scale them back. What does that mean for most of the founder-led businesses out there? Is that good or bad? How should they think about that? It's a supply and demand challenge, and it far favors the seller in this example. So we started this conversation off talking about the volume going down, right? And a lot of the volume has come down quite a bit on that macro side, quite a bit on the larger cap side. And deploying those types of resources takes a lot of debt. Debt has gotten a lot more expensive, presents a lot more challenges on that larger side, not just macro. As a result, you tend to see investors start to do is, one, okay, we can't deploy in these larger situations. How do we still deploy capital, but be more thoughtful? So spreading it out across a number of different investments as opposed to bigger ones and fewer, as well as there just tends to be less interesting outcomes from where their outcome could be. So their concern on what the market not just looks like today, it's more what does their market look like when they ultimately exit. There's a lot more outcomes available for a company that's 20 to 50 in ARR. There's a lot less for a company that's doing 100 plus million ARR. So increasing the amount of opportunities for them to get liquid on that asset, more opportunities in that middle market. And what that does is it puts a lot more pressure on deal volume in that middle section. So more dollars centering around that, escaping that early stage VC, which has its inherent challenges in more uncertain times or larger market has its challenge that I just identified, they all push to the middle. So supply and demand imbalance. There's a lot of demand to deploy capital in a limited amount of supply being interesting investable companies that tends to bode well for selling your business. And so what we're seeing is a lot of these mega funds, yeah, they still have the opportunities to do these big take privates or large cap deals, but they've started to create smaller endeavor funds or, or micro funds inside of those to deploy those resources to this middle market. And that supply and demand imbalance has created a lot of exciting outcomes. So yes, we talked about it feels like valuations have gone down and the lens has increased, but it is still a great environment because that demand is so high to deploy that these guys just need to find a way to get it done. And so that's actually helped us out quite a bit. Yeah. And I think the break point, if you're a founder out there, I think if your business is worth less than half a billion, the fund sizes coming down, I think are generally positive to you because there were some PE firms that had just gotten so big. You look at their average check size, they just couldn't do a $100, $200 million deal. Now those bigger funds are coming down market. And so there's more opportunity. And there's just less financial engineering. The smaller you go, it's more about the growth opportunity. It's about the ability to build something special and build a bigger business. When you get into the mega deals, there's a lot of financial engineering. And that kind of leads us into the next point, which is how higher interest rates have really impacted valuation and closability. 
So if you're a growth-oriented business, a lot of the valuation is where is the business going to be in the next three to five years and what kind of multiple could a PE firm get when they exit? If you're a really large company that's growing slower, there's kind of less variability in what that outcome can be. And you see debt play a much bigger role in the financing. We're hearing about much larger transactions having issues. A term sheet will be negotiated. They try to price the debt. They either can't get the debt or it's a lot more expensive than they thought. And then that changes the return profile, which means they have to try and retrade the price. Definitely be careful about transactions where there's a material amount of debt. Just know that that's much lower probability of working out your way versus in 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021. We paid some attention to debt, but it was a very high probability you were going to be able to get that on the pricing that you wanted. So anyway, something to keep a lookout for if you're getting a term sheet from a private equity firm. Mike, I guess one question for you. I know internally we were kind of nervous about could we keep running these either fully non-exclusive or mostly non-exclusive process in the market environment. Spoiler alert, we're still able to do that with the right asset, but just talk a little bit about that. How has that changed and maybe how is the filter a little bit tighter for these types of businesses that get really competitive? Absolutely. With an uncertain time comes greater focus on the basics, right? And the basics for a SaaS business are are those KPIs. And so where in, call it 2021, there was a lot more willingness to have flexibility on certain KPIs, that lens has just tightened up quite a bit. Internally, we've talked about haves and have-nots, have-nots being folks that might have a little bit of growth or rejiggering from a KPI perspective, the haves that have kind of figured all of those metrics out. With those haves, to my earlier point, there's just fewer assets like that in the market. And so the demand to deploy resources and capital has just continued to increase. Fund size can shrink, but that doesn't make the ability or desire to invest in these businesses less. So as a result, what you see is a lot less of these types of assets, but more people willing to deploy. As a result, you can keep that process a lot more non-exclusive for a longer period of time. At some point, you will need to potentially provide that type of of access. But because of the demand for these types of assets and how unique those haves have been for those that have crossed that threshold on fixing a lot of those and having a lot of those core KPIs produces some really attractive outcomes. And honestly, that's where you get to those really high ARR multiple outcomes is keeping a non-exclusive and as a result, driving that price. Absolutely. Valuations are still high. The processes are still really competitive. The filters are just a little tighter and investors tend to all like the same things and value the same types of businesses. And that may change a little bit. Hopefully if interest rates come down and we're more in a growth on environment and people are willing to see bigger losses on the EBITDA or cash flow line. One other thing we just wanted to comment is what we think about Q4 of this year and going into Q1 of next year. I think our sense is this feels a lot like the summer of 2020. So as a reminder, what was going on there is all the lockdowns happened and it was really hard to get deals done. There was appetite to get deals done, but no one could figure out how to get a deal closed during all these lockdowns. As soon as that got figured out, the deal pace just took off and we got some really nice transactions done in the early part of that market opening up because there was a lot of demand, but not a lot of supply. That's kind of how we're thinking about Q4 and Q1 of next year. And I think in an upward-leaning environment, sometimes it's good to be early because there's a lot of demand for your deal, but there's not a lot of supply of deals out there. And you can end up in some interesting situations where you just get even more attention than you would normally get because there's so few deals on market. So again, consider that as we're going into the early part of next year. 
Mike, thanks for joining me and talking a little bit about the current state of the SaaS M&A market and where we're headed. Yeah, appreciate it. We're really excited on what we've seen and more importantly on what's to come. Vistapoint Advisors is a founder-focused investment bank that advises software and internet founders through M&A and capital raise transactions. We are a fully unconflicted investment bank who only works for founders on the sell side, so you know that we're always representing your best interests. Securities offered through Vistapoint Advisors, member FINRA, CIPIC. This has been provided for informational purposes only. It is not intended to address all circumstances that might arise. Testimonials from past clients may not be representative of the experience of other clients, and there is no guarantee of future performance or success. Clients are not compensated for their comments. If you have any questions about the process of selling your business or raising capital, reach out to a member of our team, or check out the Four Founders section of our site by visiting fourfounders.guide.